Well, good morning, everybody. Ooh, that was loud. Nice. So I'm assuming I don't need this because I'm not singing, but is it, do we want to leave it up here or what? And put it aside? Okay, I'll put it aside. So uh, I think we should give Wes a round of applause for uh, leading us when he was substituting. That was awesome. And uh, I probably shouldn't let the, hat out of, or the cat out of the bag, but it is his birthday this week or something like that, which I saw in the announcements. So you didn't hear that just from me. It was in the announcements already. So, But I have to say I'm very excited to be here this morning because I got to spend some time with some of you last weekend at the teen winter retreats. How many of you guys were there last weekend? Cool, you got some, got some hands up? That's awesome. Yeah, it was a privilege to be there, and I was so excited to see how the Lord was doing some pretty cool stuff. And so, with that being said, let's get to work in our text. We're going to be in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. And so before we actually dive into our text, I want to give a little bit of a brief background about what's going on, because it'll help us set up what's going on in our text. Okay? So as you could probably guess, uh, this book was written by the Apostle Peter, according to 1 Peter 1.1. And uh, the Apostle Peter was known as the leader of the apostles, and you can see that throughout the scriptures. Um, Jesus specifically called him to feed his sheep, and you can see that he stepped up to this leadership role in the beginning, especially the beginning of Book of Acts, but you can see it throughout. And so he had a really difficult task in writing this book, though, okay? because um, the believers that he was dealing with were suffering more horrendously than we could ever even imagine. Okay? You see, these, these believers, they were in Rome, the ones that he was writing to, and they were under the ruler known as Emperor Nero. And this guy decided, from what I've read, to set some fires to go out and destroy part of the city of Rome. And so the Romans were not very happy about that, as you can probably imagine, because these fires, they seemed to destroy the community. It destroyed families. It destroyed so many things that were going on. And so they actually thought it was him. And so in order to turn the blame off of himself, he decided to turn the blame on these Christians. And so, uh, as you can probably guess, these Christians were already hated for being believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But this just added to the flame of the fire that was going on. And so kind of to give you a little bit of an idea of what these Christians were going through, um, just for the Romans' amusement, they would throw these Christians into a ring and watch them try to survive the attack of wild animals. Obviously, they didn't make it out most of the time. Okay? Another part that we see is that they were crucified on the cross, just like their Savior, and you can see it almost as a mockery. Um, because that was one of the most horrendous ways you could die that the Romans would do. It was the most shameful way somebody could die because when you're hung on a cross, naked and beaten in front of a group of people, the worst criminal's death you could ever imagine, that's what these Christians were going through. And obviously, they were following their Savior's example. Um, one of the other ones I read, which I think was probably one of the most difficult ones to read, to be honest with you, um, is they would take some of these Christians and they would cover them in wax. And then they would tie them to a stake and light them on fire to persecute them. Okay? Um, so, how does Peter encourage a group of believers that are going through this intense suffering? So if we were to look at the main theme of this book, we would see that it is to remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ throughout suffering. 
So after he greets these believers, he actually starts this letter off in a little bit of a shocking way. So I'm using the ESV translation, so for those who use using electronic Bibles, you can follow along with me. But here's the first sentence that he starts with after his greeting. He starts with this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's calling them to praise the Lord. That's what he opens up this letter with. You know, I'm trying to put myself in these believers' shoes as they're being crucified, as they're being lit on fire, as they're being thrown in a ring with wild animals just to survive. And Peter starts off this letter with praise the Lord. How could he do that? How could the leader of the apostles, knowing what they were going through, experiencing much suffering himself, start with Praise him. Well, we're going to see part of that this morning. And so uh, the main point that we're going to see in our text, and throughout all the verses that we look at, it's kind of all surrounding this one statement that we see in these verses. Okay, so here's the one statement that we're going to see and we're going to hear a lot of this morning. So don't get sick of the statement because it's a good statement, um, but this is what we're seeing all the way through. Here's what the statement is. We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I'm going to say it again. We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, and here are the points that are kind of going to kind of build on that main point or kind of supplement it. So point number one, according to the Father's mercy. According to the Father's mercy. Number two, to an inheritance that is guarded by God. To an inheritance that is guarded by God. And here's the last point. That is rejoiced in, though tested by trials. That is rejoiced in, though tested by trials. So what we're going to do is we're going to unpack this main statement that we're going to see, and then we're going to walk through this outline that I just gave to you. Does that sound good? Yeah, kind of. Okay, cool. All right. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to ask the Holy Spirit of God just to work on our hearts this morning, and then we're going to dive into verse 3. So let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we're just so honored to be here this morning. Lord, we, we just love being here with the fellowship of, of everyone here, Lord, who are striving to seek after you. Um, God, we are privileged just to have uh, the ability and the grace to hear from your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that your word is, is to challenge us, is to grow our faith, um, and is to deepen our relationship with you. Lord, so I just pray that you take this word and that um, the power of your Holy Spirit comes in this room right now and just teaches us and convicts us of anything that we need to be convicted of, but also encourages us, maybe in a time of suffering that we are facing personally. Um, so, Lord, we are thankful for you, and we bless your name right now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so let's look at verse 3, the full, the full verse there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the question is, in light of revealing our main point in this text that we see, is what does it mean to be born again to a living hope? 
Because whatever this means allowed believers to go through some of the worst suffering you could ever even imagine. Whatever this born again to a living hope helped these Christians face wild animals, helped them face being crucified on a cross, being lit on fire, and so many other things. So what is it? So let's define being born again. The word born again can be known as regeneration. And it refers to receiving a new life or a new nature or, go, or going from being dead to being made alive. So if you've got your Bibles, turn over to Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. This is kind of going to kind of give us a picture of what it looks like to be born again. Okay? So again, that's Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. I'll give you a minute to turn there. So it says this. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So we're going to be cleansed from all wickedness. We're going to be going from a dead nature to a nature that's alive. We're going to be given a new nature, one that is not dead to our sin, but alive. We are given a brand new heart, a heart that goes from rebellion to obedience. We are given a new spirit in order that we may walk according to his word and according to his will. And so this is what it looks like to have a new life or to be born again. You know, I think of um, our youth ministry right now. I've been there for about a year and a half, uh, my wife and I. Um, and there's, this, there's been this team that's been there since we've been there. Okay, and for the first year, he was kind of like, nope, not interested. Just showing up, just coming, just coming to hang out, play games, be with his friends, you know. Um, and then something strange happened. Over the summer, um, he went to a trip to Germany, no, no church-related thing. And then he came back, and ever since that point, it was like something was different. He came back, and he was totally engaged in what we were talking about. He was asking questions related to the scriptures. He was talking about faith in Christ. He didn't necessarily say he was saved or anything like that, but he was just so intrigued. He was trying to read more whenever I called for teens to read the scriptures. And then three months later, we just happened to be talking about end times. And I don't know why, but for some reason, whenever you talk about end times with teenagers, they just freak out. I don't know. Just, just for whatever reason. Just the end of the earth just sounds horrible. I mean, I don't know. See the movies and shows that they watch. Um, but he's just like, can we talk? I, I really want to have more questions and stuff. I'm like, all right, let me know when you want to talk. And so obviously you're not sure if they're actually going to talk to us. Um, six in the morning, he texts me. He's like, hey, can we talk? I got so many questions that I have to ask. I was like, down, let's go. And so we went to McDonald's with uh, my buddy RJ, who's part of the youth group, and some of you might have met him last week. Um, but we went there, and he talked about how he repented from his sins and put his faith in Christ. But before I even knew that, something was different. I didn't say, I didn't say a sinner's prayer with him or anything like that, 
I didn't even vocally say anything to him. He's been with us for months, and then he heard the gospel constantly, and then something hit him. I don't know what it was, but something changed. And then we found out. He put his faith in Christ, and everything changed for him. He has a new nature. He has a new heart. He has a desire for the scriptures. I couldn't give him that. I'm trying to get these kids to read the Bible all the time. And this kid just wants it all of a sudden. It was awesome. But this is what this new life looks like. And so if we were to go back to our verse, in verse 3, we see, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. All right, so what's this new life connected with this living hope? All right, so here's how one author defines living hope. He says it like this. This hope is the eager, confident, expectation of the life to come. It is a living, it is living by so describing it, Peter indicated that it grows and increases in strength year by year. So clearly we see that this living hope is this eager, confident expectation of the fullness of our salvation. That's what it's ultimately coming to. Okay, and it, it doesn't just happen. It is birthed in us when we are given new life. You see, when we repent and put our faith in Jesus Christ, and we are given this new life, we're given a taste of our salvation. We haven't experienced the fullness of it. So in that new nature, we are given a hope for that eternal state where we're going to be with Christ forever. And as we get older, as we grow in our faith, that longing only gets stronger. I think back nine years ago when my life was totally different than it is now, and I think I wanted so much more than I ever have in my life. And it's because I want him more. I'm realizing where my faith lies. I'm realizing what this life is all about, and it's to live for Christ. And that's where our living hope is. Because I don't know about you, but when we look in this world that we live in, there are people who are putting their living hope or their ultimate hope in things that can be taken away from them or destroyed. Right? Some people put their living hope or their ultimate hope in their careers. That can be taken away from them. Some people put it in their money or their retirement, but that can be taken away from them. Some people put it in their spouses or their soon-to-be spouse or their desire for a spouse, and yet that can be taken away from them or never even given to them. Some people put their ultimate hope in their children, but they too can be taken away from you. And so the problem is, when you put your hope in things that are not eternal in the sense of this physical realm, is when it's taken away from you, it destroys you. Because although those things are good, there's nothing evil about them, they're gifts from God, they are never meant to take the place of Christ, ever. He's our ultimate hope. He's our living hope. And so when we go back to our verses and we look at um, how we receive this living hope, it is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, if he doesn't live and he doesn't die and he doesn't resurrect from the dead, we have no hope. If he stays in the grave, we have nothing. We have a dead Savior. 
We don't have a Savior. But because he has risen, we have hope. And when you think about it in the context of what these believers were going through, they need a little bit of hope. Because if they put their hope in their families, if they put their hope in their land, if they put their hope in their government that's currently trying to kill them, they're going to be crushed because that's taken away from that at any moment. They were dying. So Peter opens up with, put your hope in Christ. Because that's the only thing that's going to get you through. So the question now is, what does Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection 2,000 years ago have anything to do with the suffering these people were facing in my present time of suffering? Because I think we live in the state where we, we, we believe in Christ. Right? We know it happened. And yet, we're still suffering. We're still going through horrible things. So how is the gospel... How is the resurrection of Christ relevant to our present time of suffering? And that's another great question. But before we can understand the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we have to understand this. Suffering is just a symptom of what our root problem actually is. Suffering is just the root problem or is a symptom of the root problem of what it actually is. What do I mean by that? Okay, When you have a cough, or you have a runny nose, or maybe you're throwing up or something, like you have all these things going on with you, and you walk in and you go to a doctor, okay, what does it usually they do? Anybody tell me? What do they do when you go to a doctor? What was that? I'm sorry? What are your symptoms? They're like, what's going on? What are you feeling? And they're like, and you tell them, and they're like, okay, here's what I think your problem is. And then they give you meds. And so what am I getting at? Our current state of suffering is a symptom pointing to all of humanity's problems. We have a virus known as sin. And in order to deal with our suffering, we have to deal with sin. That's where Jesus comes in. He says in Matthew 9, 12 through 13, you don't have to turn now, I'm just going to paraphrase it. He says that those who are sick are the ones who need a doctor, not the ones who aren't sick. He's referring to, I have come to save those who recognize they are dying in their sin. I didn't come to save those who think they are righteous on their own strength. Because if you think you're righteous on your own strength, why would you go to Jesus? It's the same thing. You're always telling that one person, go to the doctor. Get something done. Get help. Like, no, 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 no. I'll be fine. Suffer. Like, if you're not going to get help, there's nothing I can do for you. And that's what we see here. Christ is the antidote. Christ is the one who kills our virus, which is sin. And he did it through his resurrection. And so now we have to ask the question, well, how do we deal with this practically now? Because, okay, I can see how it relates, but how do we deal with this practically? 
Hold that question because we're going to come back to that in my conclusion. But now we're going to hit point one that I was referring to in the three points that are going to build on this point. So point one, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead according to the Father's mercy. Go back to verse three. According to his great mercy, there we have his motive, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here in this moment, we see a window into our Father's heart. And then we see how he puts his heart on display for us. You see, the word mercy means this. Kindness or goodwill towards the miserable and the afflicted joined with a desire to help them. I'm going to read that definition again. Mercy is translated kindness or goodwill towards the miserable and the afflicted joined with a desire to help them. Okay, I'm going to give you a couple other texts. You can just write them down. You don't have to find them or read them. But this is where this word mercy is also used. Okay, this is Ephesians 2, 4 through 5a. And if you were there at camp last week, you would have heard this uh, preached on a little bit. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That's one. Here's another one. Titus 3, 4 through 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration, or that being born again, and a renewal of the Holy Spirit. And then here's the last one I want to share with you. Romans 9, 15 through 16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So we can clearly see that our Father in heaven is rich in mercy. And he chooses to place that mercy on whom he ever wishes. So in other words, God had and continues to have great kindness or goodwill towards us who are miserable and afflicted. And had and continues to have the desire to help us. So God sees us in our brokenness. He sees us in our misery and he has a desire to help us. And the way he did that was again through the resurrection of Christ. Or in other words, he chose to slaughter his son like an animal to display his mercy towards you and me. He was slaughtered to save us. That's a gift. We don't deserve that. And yet, that was his motive. So that's point one. So as we continue on in our text, not only has God given us a new life to a living hope, according to his mercy, but he also saved us to something through his resurrection. That's point two. We have been born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is guarded by God. So we'll read 3 and 4 again, verses 3 and 4, because then you can get the full picture. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So this inheritance can be defined like this, a wealth passed down or a legacy one receives as a member of a family. So we see that this inheritance by our Father through Jesus Christ, by looking at this, it never dies. It is never taken away from you. It is perfect. It is pure. And it doesn't fade away. It can never fade away from you. Which means, who can touch it? Nobody. Who can take it away from you? Nobody. Who can lose it? Nobody. Many of us are like, thank God, because if I could, I would. Okay? We can't lose it. But here's the crazy part that we see in this verse. Our inheritance is guarded by the all-powerful God of the universe who spoke galaxies into existence. Nobody's going to touch that. He guards it. He protects it. He keeps it in a place that can never be touched because he loves you. So the question now is, what is this inheritance? What is it? Because whatever it is, gives us the power and gives us the endurance that transcends any suffering we have faced, currently face, or will face in the future. So if you were to look at every section of Scripture, at least that I found, that is related to our inheritance, okay, um, it seems that every part of our inheritance that is mentioned is connected to the resurrection of Christ, or the fullness of God. Which makes me believe that the fullness of our inheritance that is to come is the fullness of Christ himself. He's the inheritance. He's what we want. Through him, we get the fullness of God. Through him, we are set free from the brokenness of this world. I want to give you a little glimpse of that. Um, I'm going to ask you guys to close your eyes, and I want you to use your imagination here to picture the full effect of your inheritance, okay? Because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, what I'm about to read to you is yours. It's yours, all right? So listen closely as I read this section. This is from Revelation 21, 1 through 4. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, 
and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Open up your eyes. Guys, this is what Peter was pointing to these believers to. They needed to know that they could hold on to something that was never going to be taken away from them. They needed to hold on to the fact that their pain, their suffering was going to end and it was going to end through the resurrection of Christ. There's no other way to get it. This is what empowered them to persevere because they knew what was coming. And that's the same for us today. If you're suffering Today, no matter how little you think it is or how great it may be, this is where our hope lies. This is our inheritance. It can never be touched. It can never be taken away. This is ours through Christ. This is how we persevere. So again, as we continue on in our text, not only has God given us a new life to a living hope according to his mercy, to an eternal inheritance through the resurrection of Christ, but he's also given us a reason to rejoice even through our present suffering. This is my last point before the conclusion. We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that is rejoiced in, though tested, by trials. Okay, we're going to look at verses 6 to 7 of 1 Peter, uh, chapter 1. In this you rejoice. I want to pause there for a second. What are we rejoicing in? Everything we just talked about. We rejoice in the fact we have been given new life to a living hope. We rejoice in the fact we're given an inheritance that can never be taken away from us. This is what we are rejoicing in, and it is all through Christ. So, in this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we see here now, he is acknowledging their suffering. So we saw he started off with praise. He led them to the gospel, and then he leads them to their actual suffering circumstance. You rejoice in this, though you are facing this. And this is the, this is the nice part. Now, we never see the full picture of our suffering on this planet. 
okay? That's never going to be answered for us on this side of eternity. We see that it has is, is come through sin. Um, and then the second part that we see is found in verse 7. Here's the why we go through trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what our trials do, God takes his word, he takes the gospel, he takes our circumstances, and they're constantly clashing because he's trying to test our faith to show the genuineness of it. Because if you have faith in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what your trial is going to be, you are going to persevere through it in the end. And so if you walk away from the gospel, if you walk away from Christ because of your suffering circumstance, your faith has just been proven to you, whether it's genuine or not. I was, I was listening to an interview by these two pastors. Um, one of them was from Germany and the other one was from the United States. And the one from Germany was suffering horrendously. Like the, his people, they were just going through horrible stuff. Um, and so the pastor from the United States says to the one from Germany, he's just like, man, I could not imagine pastoring your church, trying to pastor your people going through all that stuff. That'd be horrible. And the German pastor looks at him and he says, are you kidding me? I couldn't imagine being a pastor in the United States because at least I know what side my people are on. Ow. That's painful. And yet, that's what this verse is getting to. I also, I also in many ways, think of um, my first practice playing basketball. Okay, I know Graham Corletta can relate to this, all right, because he, he was there with me. I don't know about that one, but many times. So I played for the Rochester Rapids homeschool basketball team around here. I don't know if you guys are familiar with them. Um, like, remember, I love basketball. Like, that's my thing. That's just, I just love playing. And so when I first went to my first practice, I was like, yes, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to love it. Okay? And so uh, right where the coaches were, you know, I'm just shooting my shots, just trying to impress the coaches. And obviously, Graham knows you can't do that like that. Um, but then practice started, and I felt like all we did was run and run and run to the point where everybody around me, I swear, was throwing up, okay? It was bad, okay? That wasn't even the worst of it, though. The worst of it was the next day when every muscle in your body that you didn't even know you had was sore because you never worked out a day in your life before that moment. Um, and so then you have to think about the next day, the next practice, knowing you have to go through all of it again, okay? Um, so that's where my love for the game of basketball was tested. Do I actually love this game? Because right now, I am not feeling that love. I can tell you that. And yet, I didn't quit. I played the next five years, and my love for the game grew, and my skills grew, and everything else with it. But I'll tell you what, my love for the game got stronger because I went through the suffering. And that's the same thing with our faith in Christ, is when we hold fast 
to our Savior in light of our suffering and watch him pull us through that? Is that not going to grow our love for our Savior? Knowing he pulled you through that, knowing what is at the end for you, knowing he has just made you stronger in the image of Christ than you were the day before. I'm not saying you have to like it, but I am saying you appreciate what happens in the end. Because like we saw in in, uh, the previous verse, um, it says basically that your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if we went back to our opening, it doesn't sound as crazy when Peter tells them to praise him, does it not? So uh, for the sake of time, we're not going to turn there, but if we were to actually read a little bit farther in 1 Peter, this is 1 Peter 4, 12, and 13, uh, 14. Um, you can write it down and look at it later. Um, but he actually says these belie- to these believers, do not be surprised by various trials or suffering as though it is something strange. It's not strange when we suffer. Why? We live in a broken world with its natural suffering, like physical pain, all that stuff. Okay? But we also live in a world that hates God. And if you're standing up for the name of Christ and what he's done, you should expect some opposition. Everywhere you look in our Bible, you see opposition to the people of God. Everywhere. And so if we come to God whining all the time, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? Have we read our Bibles? Have we seen what's going on with God's people? They're suffering through through multiple different things, whether that's natural sicknesses or things like that, or whether that's through actual opposition of people. But then he says, in in the few verses after that, he says, rejoice in Christ. Rejoiced in Christ, because when you rejoice in Christ, because of your suffering for standing up for his name, you are walking in his example. You see, not only was the Father's mercy displayed to us when he sent Christ, but Christ, as we learned, humbled himself to the point of obedience, to the death on a cross. So he was slaughtered willfully. And we suffer for him. We're walking in his footsteps. And so because of that, when we walk in his example, when we suffer in light of him and pull through because of our faith in him, this leads us to verse 8 and 9 of our text that we've been looking through. This is kind of what takes place when this happens. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Guys, we're not joyful because of our suffering. 
we're joyful because through Christ we're receiving the fullness of our salvation. That's a reason to rejoice. Always. And so as we finish our text, and then we're going to hit the conclusion, not only has God given us a new life to a living hope, according to his mercy, to an eternal inheritance, but he's also given us a reason to rejoice in the midst of our trials. And all this came through because of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And so, down to my conclusion, I asked a question earlier, and I said we're going to come back to it. Here's how we're coming back to it. Here's the question again. I, I kind of reworded it, but just to make it sound better. Um, how does Jesus' resurrection from the dead help us to practically deal with our current state of suffering? Turn over to 1 Peter 5, 6-7. through 7. He actually addresses this for us. Thank you, Peter. You make this so much easier. Okay, 1 Peter 5, 6 to 7. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So in this text, we see God calling us to trust him in the midst of our suffering. Because like I said, we can't see the full picture of our suffering. He can. He knows what he's doing. He's sovereign. And if you believe he has what's best for you, you'll trust him, even if you don't understand. So he calls us to humbly submit to his lordship and will, no matter how great the suffering is that we must endure. That's what it looks like to trust him in the midst of our suffering. And God will exalt us in his timing, whether that's now or whether that's in eternity. He's going to exalt us for his glory's sake, which means our suffering is not meaningless. Do you understand that? Your suffering is not meaningless in God's sovereign mind that we will never fully understand it is ultimately turned to your good for his glory it's not meaningless again it doesn't matter how little you feel you're suffering or maybe you've gone through stuff that I would never even want to think of going through the fact remains the same God is sovereign, and you can trust him. And so in the meantime, while you humbly submit to his lordship and will as you suffer for his name's sake, you are to cast all your anxieties, all your burdens, all your pains onto the Lord Jesus Christ through pouring out your heart to him in prayer. You, pour, you tell him everything you're feeling. He's God, he can handle it. You pour out all that you're feeling. You pour out all your trials. You pour out all your frustrations. You tell him if you are struggling with what he's doing. That's what You have to do that because he already knows. 
Like, he already knows if you're struggling with something that he's doing. It's not going to be a surprise. But he wants you to cast those things upon him through prayer. And in his timing, he will exalt you. Now, with that being said, it's okay to ask the Lord to deliver you from your suffering. I want to point that out there because I feel like you're only so holy if you're suffering and it's, it's unholy to ask him to deliver you. Really? Have you looked at most people in the Bible? They ask for deliverance. Some get it, some don't. Okay? So maybe you're sick or maybe you have something physically wrong. Go to a doctor. God's not going to be mad at you because you go for a doctor. He created doctors to help. Now, does that mean you're going to get healed? No. Does that mean he's going to fix everything? Not necessarily. But in you trusting him, in you bringing it to him, no matter what the doctor says, no matter what is going on in your life, you trust him. And if he heals you, amazing. If he helps you, if he delivers you, awesome. If he doesn't, he's worthy. He's still worthy. Because at the end of the day, your suffering will be over. And you will have nothing but an eternal joy and light of the resurrection of Christ. He will sustain your faith through your suffering. Are you going to trust him? Are you going to cast your burdens, your pains, and everything upon him and submit to him no matter what, knowing that in the end, even if he doesn't deliver you, it's going to be more glorious than you can ever even imagine when you're with him forever. And so in that same chapter, chapter 5, we're going to close with these two verses, chapter, uh, verse 10 through 11. And then we'll close. Here's partly how he ends this book for them. And I just just found it really encouraging. Um, He says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we are just so humbled by you. Lord, you slaughtered your son for us. Your mercy was put on display for us. You saw us in our misery and our brokenness. And in your desire to help us, you sent the most precious part of you, which is your son. And you sacrificed him for us because that's how much you love us. Lord, we are just so thankful. And we just are so blessed. And we are honored that we always have a reason to praise you and bless you. Because, Lord, at the end of it all, as followers of Jesus Christ, as those who have been born again, 
You have given us a living hope. God, you've given us an inheritance that empowers us to transcend our suffering, Lord. Our suffering in this world is never meaningless. Because, God, you take our brokenness, you take our suffering, and you mold us more into the image of Christ than we were yesterday. And Lord, I thank you that even though we don't always understand why we're going through things, that, Lord, we can trust you. So, God, I pray for anybody who's been suffering through things, maybe questioning, um, trusting you in certain aspects. God, I pray, encourage their hearts right now. I don't know what everybody's going through, but that's not the point. The point is, Lord, you're enough for them. You're enough. So help them, God, as they walk through this. Help the fellowship of the believers to be there for them and to encourage their hearts to remember that their inheritance is, is apart from their pain, apart from their brokenness, apart from their suffering. And although it stings right now, we can always come back to you and rejoice knowing that you're in control and we have everything we need in you. So we love you, Lord. We praise you in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.